Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forums podcast, webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, I'm going to start um, uh, not on the Israeli political scene, although there's been some interesting developments in the last couple of minutes, which I hope to get to. I want to start, first of all, by talking about something which uh, uh, was a... Was a pretty important event this week uh, that took place on Sunday. It was uh, Israel celebrated uh, Jerusalem Day, uh, the day where Jerusalem was liberated uh, in 1967 during the Six Day War, uh, reunified the two parts of Jerusalem, as we know, uh, no Jews, no Israelis were allowed uh, into the eastern parts, actually the eastern northern part of the southern parts of Jerusalem. Uh, from 1949 until 1967. Uh, so it's it's a day which is celebrated. Uh, and it definitely has uh, in recent years become more of a right-wing celebration or even a right-wing religious. Uh, there is uh, what's called a flag parade every uh, Jerusalem day. Uh, and it's become more and more conspicuous for the fact that it's almost solely religious, uh, more, more often than not right-wing. Um, and the path has been the path for many, many years. I don't know exactly how many years, but certainly decades. And it starts on Jaffa Street, people who know the uh, geography of Jerusalem. And the most contentious part is it then goes through Damascus Gate, through the Muslim quarter, and makes its way to the Kotel, the Western Wall, where there are tens of thousands of people who dance and celebrate uh, well into the night. Uh, this has been going on for years. Uh, unfortunately, um, every now and again in recent years, um, there's always a few people, really a small amount, considering, as I said, there's tens of thousands of people who take part, mostly youths. Uh, there's always one or two, uh, maybe a little bit more than one or two, but not that much more, who try and make problems as they go through the Muslim quarter. They bang on uh, Arab-owned businesses, uh, maybe shout some racist slogans, but again, it's it's a tiny, tiny um, minority. Um, but what was interesting last year is if we remember the uh, Guardian of the Walls uh, operation started after Hamas threatened that on uh, Jerusalem day, they will uh, fire rockets uh, at Jerusalem if the uh, flag parade uh, goes ahead. And if we remember, it was the government, it was the interim government of uh, Netanyahu and Gantz at the time, and uh, Prime Minister at the time, Netanyahu, uh, decided to cancel uh, the flag parade. This year, once again, we heard Hamas and some of the other terrorist organizations like Palestinian Islamic Jihad threaten all sorts of consequences. Should the flag parade go ahead? Um, should there be any sort of tensions on uh, the Temple Mount, uh, in and around the Al-Aqsa Mosque, etc., etc.? Uh, so there was a lot of tension building up for Sunday. A lot of people didn't know what to expect. Some people thought that perhaps we were going to have another round. It's rare, uh, certainly we haven't had it, where there'd be two rounds of 
violence conflict uh, in two years. Uh, but there were those who thought that they could come, uh, that it could come. Hamas certainly were lend, uh, leading people to believe that. And apparently in Gaza, a lot of people were collecting food in advance and preparing for such an eventuality. It was certainly on the cards. The interesting thing is this government, uh, considering it's criticized for being you know, not right wing enough, not strong enough, uh, did not wilt, did not give up uh, the flag parade. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Bennett was um, very strong on saying this, this parade should go ahead in its exact form that it's been going on for decades. Interesting enough, the internal security Minister Omer Barlev of the left-wing Labour Party was also very adamant that it should go ahead. The case that was made, certainly from the from someone like Omer Barlev, who's not necessarily ideologically uh, committed or ideologically aligned to most of the participants in the flag parade, was uh, that he was hearing, and many other security officials were hearing or or thinking, or uh, that if it didn't go ahead, or if there was a change, that this would be capitulation to Hamas and would only. Uh, you know, ensure that Hamas would be emboldened and next time threatened for any little thing, perhaps even Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel Independence Day celebrations, et cetera, et cetera. So in the face of all these threats, as opposed to last year, this uh, government, this leadership did decide and the flag parade went uh, as planned. Um, and despite, again, some very sole minor uh, hooliganism from a few participants of a minor amount, the, the, the majority of the tens of thousands enjoyed the day as it should be, as it has been, and the event went uh, without really pretty much too much violence. There were, there were calls for Palestinians to come and confront with their own flags. Again, we're talking about 20 or 30, and they were uh, pushed away by the security forces, by the police, so that the two crowds did not really become entangled in any way. And, and in the end, it was actually uh, an event that went off without uh, the expected violence. Now, why is this significant? Uh, because Hamas especially have come out of this looking very, very bad, especially amongst their constituents. Um, Hamas built themselves last year, especially uh, during Operation Guardian the Wars and leading up to it as the defenders of Jerusalem. Don't forget they were the ones who threatened, they were the ones who launched missiles into Jerusalem, they were the ones who got the flag parade uh, stopped uh, as I said, it did not happen. Um, and they basically launched in the end, uh, I can't remember exactly, but many missiles into Israel, which caused uh, uh, multiple lives lost. But of course, many more were killed on the Palestinian side when Israel um, took action to, to stop Hamas. Um, but certainly the, the, the main uh, sort of narrative on the Palestinian street has been that Hamas lost face. Hamas didn't do what it said it was going to do. Uh, to be fair to Hamas, if, if I can say such a thing, uh, they never said specifically, if this happens, this will happen. But they did threaten, and most people understood uh, between the lines that, uh, that if the flag parade should go ahead, and by the way, not just a flag parade, uh, in the morning, um, I think it was something like a, a few thousand Israelis went up to the Temple Mount, I think a record amount for, for a day, and even some waved the Israeli flags. And one can imagine, uh, certainly the first by Jews on the Temple Mount, certainly on Jerusalem Day, uh, one would think would be a red rag to Hamas. And the fact that these pictures were going all over Palestinian uh, social media without a response from Hamas uh, also really just cemented the fact that Hamas 
uh, came out of this uh, a little bit uh, losing face, or not even just a little bit. Um, and on the Israeli side, Naftali Bennett came out pretty strongly uh, and certainly looked much stronger than his predecessor, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, last year, as we remember, did cancel at the last minute uh, the Jerusalem uh, flag parade. Um, so in the Israeli politics, certainly uh, Bennett came out strongly. Uh, if uh, one, I, I saw a quite amazing video of um, Batalo Smotrich of the far right um, uh, religious uh, party, national religious party, who basically said Bennett deserves credit for this. I mean, can imagine that some of the things he said about Bennett over the last few months to actually come out and say, you know, uh, well done to Naftali Bennett for making sure that the flag parade uh, went ahead and, and just as surprising as his explicit uh, support for Bennett was his implicit criticism of Netanyahu as the leader of his camp and the leader of the opposition. And he did make a point of saying, as opposed to last year, this is Smotrich, when it was cancelled. So certainly uh, this was certainly feather in his cap for Naftali Bennett, potentially with his base, with the right wing uh, national religious uh, crowd. Um, but the questions that everyone's asking themselves, especially on the Palestinian street or Palestinian observers or people who, who are interested in the conflict, is why didn't Hamas uh, respond even minimally? And there are many points of view here. First of all, uh, Israel tried to get ahead of the game, tried to pass messages through Egypt, through Qatar, through the Americans, through the Europeans to give the message to Hamas that do not mess uh, Israel's response will be massive to the point where there were suggestions that Israel could return to a policy of assassinating uh, Hamas leaders. As we know in the past, uh, it has uh, assassinated uh, Sheikh Rantisi and, and others, uh, but for a while, not necessarily uh, through um, that it had an opportunity, but it hasn't assassinated a high level Hamas leader in quite a while. And there has been reports that Israel is seeking perhaps to change that. So these messages were put across. Also, other ideas were that Qatar said that they would cut off the money. As we know, Qatar is a major sponsor and supporter of Hamas. And if Qatar come and say, if you, uh, if you launch rockets against Israel and get into another uh, conflict, then we will stop our, uh, you know, our support, not just of Hamas, but rebuilding uh, efforts because um, some of the rebuilding is still taking place from last year's conflict. Um, and also Israel threatened to you know, remove um, the, the passes of thousands of Gazans who are allowed to travel into Israel every day to work. And that would have also been a big blow for the Gazan economy, which would have had more and more people upset with uh, Hamas. So these are the, some, some of the reasons potentially uh, why Hamas did not, not only did they not launch rockets, but apparently they also ensured that uh, other groups, namely Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which also has uh, a, a more minor but still functioning rockets ability, um, Hamas prevented them, which also shows that Hamas, when it wants to, can stop other groups. So when we hear sometimes that it was another group and Hamas said it's not our responsibility, we know that that's not true. But Fatah, their main opponents in the Palestinian uh, sort of public, really went to town with it and made fun of Hamas, made fun of its leaders for talking fiery rhetoric. But when it came to it, uh, you know, there was nothing. There was a damp square. It, it really, they, they considering the scenes that were seen on Sunday with thousands of Israelis on the Temple Mount, Itamar Ben Gvir, 
of the National Religious Party. Israeli flags, uh, quite a few prominently being displayed. They were uh, confiscated or at least hidden uh, by the police soon after that they were raised, but the pictures were out there, the images were out there. Um, Israelis uh, prostrated themselves on the Temple Mount. There were some who were praying. Uh, these are all things which Hamas claimed uh, would be a red line for them. And clearly, in the end, uh, it wasn't. So certainly Hamas have come out as losers, uh, have lost face uh, to a certain extent on the Palestinian street. Um, just in the last few minutes before we go to questions, Israeli politics, again, has been, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, raucous. Again, we see uh, another uh, member of Knesset, this time Michal Biton, of the uh, Blue and White Party, the head of the... Uh, he will not um, hold any meetings of the Economic Committee until... He he sees an end to the transportation reform and the agricultural reform. In the end, he was pulled back from the brink. Uh, and Naftali Bennett basically said to him, as many lead uh, prime ministers have and many leaders around the world, if you have a problem, you create a committee to try and solve it. So he's, he's bought himself a couple of weeks. Um, but Bennett has obviously got a very uh, you know, narrow uh, uh, wiggle room on this. If he gives too much to Michal Biton, First of all, he will anchor the transportation minister, uh, Michal, uh, Michaeli, who's the leader of the Labour Party, and Oded Fora of the Israel Beteinu Party, who's close with the finance minister, Avito Liman, a member of his party. And they're obviously much bigger fish that uh, Bennett certainly wants to keep in line. Um, if he doesn't give him anything, then he has another renegade MK, and that puts them down to the dreaded 59. Um, we've also seen, again, uh, merits and uh, the, the same Arab woman uh, who threatened before and then returned to the coalition is now threatening again. Uh, so we'll have to wait uh, and see what happens with that. The opposition have decided as of this week that they are not going to support. We, we, we talked last week about the law to give um, funding, assisted funding for, uh, for further education after the army for combat soldiers. And there was a big debate whether the Likud, the opposition, would be able to support something which is a real consensus issue. In the end, they, they ensured that it was passed, um, but now they basically said that they will not vote for any issues. Uh, and the most prominent law that's going to be caught up in this is a law which comes up every five years since 1967. As we know, Israel has not uh, you know, placed sovereignty, its sovereignty, its full sovereignty on Judea and Samaria. Um, and what that means is that the Israelis who live over the Green Line are, are under certain rules and certain laws, are under Israeli law, um, even though Israel has not uh, placed its sovereignty, uh, because every five years there's an emergency law uh, passed, and it's passed usually without much fanfare, which ensures that uh, Israelis over the Green Line have full rights, but also full obligations. If this law is allowed to lapse, and apparently it's, it's going to lapse in the next few days or a few weeks, that means Israelis over the Green Line will be disenfranchised. They won't be able to vote in elections. And one can imagine what that would do. I mean, I'm sure it would never get to that, but what one can imagine what that would do to the right-wing bloc, because almost, I would say, a vast, vast, overwhelming majority of Israelis who live in the Green Line obviously vote for right-wing parties. But they wouldn't have to pay taxes. They would be under military uh, supervision, and they would be under the same uh, military uh, administration as Palestinians. 
Um, they wouldn't have rights to healthcare. I mean, it, it'd be a real mess if this is allowed to lapse. And at the moment, um, the opposition has said that it will not pass it. And one can imagine in the coalition um, with, with some more uh, extreme left-wing elements that may prove problematic. And, uh, as of tonight, Merits have said that they will support it because they said it's part of the status quo. It's something that was voted on and whether they like it or not, that's an important law. Uh, so they will support it. So the question now is Ram, uh, who you know, will find it very difficult to vote for a law that basically differentiates between Israelis and Palestinians in the same territory. Mansour Abbas is, as we've said on many occasions, invested in this government. He's tried to convince his partners to vote for it. Uh, but at the moment, it's uncertain whether they will. That will be brought up next week. So that's certainly something uh, to look out for. As much as the opposition has said it will not vote with the government tonight, we saw the opposite happening. A law uh, was uh, brought forward by a Likud member to ensure that no publicly funded institution can have um, a Palestinian flag raised. Uh, this was uh, basically uh, after we saw hundreds or dozens at least of Palestinian flags raised at uh, Beersheba University, uh, and it caused quite a bit of outrage. Um, and basically, this law was brought up by Likud of the, excuse me, of the opposition, and many of the government uh, members, including Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, have decided to support it, and it passed by an overwhelming margin. Now, obviously, this isn't necessarily going to signal the end of the government, but what we are seeing more and more is that the parties on the right wing of the uh, in the coalition are taking more right-wing positions. We saw Gidon Saar, as I said, he's trying to pass this law, which is a standard law that's being passed every five years. And he said, if a government isn't able to pass such an obvious consensual law as uh, a law pertaining to Israelis who live under the Green Line, then what is this government worth? Now, a lot of people have taken that uh, to mean that he's about to jump ship. And there has been rumors that he is in negotiation uh, with the Likud to form a potential alternate uh, government should this government no longer be seen as something uh, that, that can work and perhaps he, and, and certainly the majority of the Israeli public would see that's preferable uh, to going to um, elections. Let's not forget Gidon Saar is someone who really, uh, you know, has a lot of distaste for uh, uh, Netanyahu and Netanyahu would obviously demand to be prime minister in any alternate government. Um, both the Likud and Gidon Saar have denied uh, that these negotiations are taking place. Gidon Saar did concede that he's approached almost every single day uh, by emissaries from the Likud uh, about joining, as I'm sure are other members of the government. Uh, there are some commentators which like to quip that uh, in Israeli politics, two denials, uh, two negatives usually mean a positive. If, if everyone's strenuously denying, sometimes there's something to it. Usually, um, you know, if people just keep their mouths shut if they uh, if there's really nothing to it. So um, there's a lot going on. There's potentially a lot of movement, um, and certainly this government is, is is really facing a lot of problems uh, with every member of Knesset. There, there, there was a meeting today of the leaders of the parties in the, uh, the uh, in the coalition, and apparently it was a tense affair. Certainly. Uh, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid of the Yeshatid Party and Gidon Saar apparently had some harsh words. They tried to show everything was good by a smiling Facebook or Twitter post afterwards, but it's clear that there is a lot of, 
I'm not even, I, I wouldn't say ill feeling, but certainly a feeling that this government is on its last legs, on its knees. And the question is what and who are going to be the people uh, to make it uh, end. Uh, so with that, I'm happy to answer any questions on these issues or anything else that's on your mind. All right, thank you so much. So the first question we have is from an anonymous attendee following up on what you were just talking about. Might Gideon Saar be the one to break the coalition? It's possible. I, again, we, we have to remember that Gideon Saar really, uh, Gideon Saar and Netanyahu uh, despise each other at this point. I mean, that's not to say that they can't work with each other. And don't forget Gideon Saar is the leader of a party who which according to some polls, not all polls and not even the majority of polls, but some polls uh, have not passed the electoral threshold. So there's a debate as to the future of Gidon Saar uh, and his party if we did go to new elections. So it probably isn't in, in his interest uh, to go to new elections. There is talk about him maybe joining with uh, Naftali Bennett. I think we mentioned that last week. Um, I think it would be difficult on and certainly his big promise and what he was supposed to differentiate himself was that he was right wing, but believed that uh, Netanyahu's time was up. Uh, so now suddenly to help form a government uh, with Netanyahu at the, at, at, the, at the head would be very difficult for, for him. And don't forget, if we are going to have an alternate government, it's not enough just to have uh, a majority uh, vote for it. You need 61. It's a formal no confidence vote. It's a formal declaration of a new government. And for that, you need 61. And Gidon Saar just doesn't have the numbers uh, to give. So it would have to be Gidon Saar's party plus. Um, so that remains to be seen. But at the moment, I, I don't say it's impossible, but certainly it would be a very difficult pill for Saar to swallow. But he's done it in the past. So I wouldn't say it's out of, out of the question, but I would say it's certainly not one of the most likely scenarios at this point. Thank you. Richard Galber asks, uh, what is your view if the law about Israelis over the Green Line fails, the current government falls and there is an election? Will there be a center-left government with a majority and a right wing, and the right wing will be consigned to the opposition? No, the, the, the center-left, Again, if we're talking about the centre-left, what are we talking about? Black, uh, blue and white, Yeshatid, Labour, maybe Merits. Uh, they don't have the numbers. Um, no poll has given them anything even close to being able to form a government. So that scenario is, is uh, exceedingly uh, unlikely. Thank you. Uh, Ariel Grumberg asks, how is legal action against Netanyahu going? Well, actually, this week, there was a bit of a blow to the uh, prosecution. The defense certainly won some points this week. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, attention being given to Filber, as, as we talked uh, in previous weeks, that he is one of the main witnesses for the state prosecution. He's turned state witness. Um, and that basically, the position that the prosecution is trying to make is that Filber was uh, told or as the case is going more gesticulated, for Filber to make sure that the, he, he, was, uh, he became the communications ministry uh, director general. And according to the prosecution's case, um, Netanyahu told him to make sure that Bezek uh, was given preferential treatment or forms that would harm Bezek were, uh, were actually uh, disposed of. Um, 
But some of the dates that the prosecution put where these meetings with Netanyahu were supposed to have taken place, now the, uh, the defense has proven by GPS uh, location and by uh, diaries kept and everything else that these meetings did not take place uh, when they said they did, that the prosecution tried to change the indictment to say instead of uh, this meeting happened on so-and-so date, that it happened around uh, the appointment of Filber. Uh, but the judges basically dismissed that and said you can't change. And at this point, but in Israel, there is a law where you don't necessarily have to go according to the indictment itself if certain details still make the case. So it's not, it's not a slam dunk for the defense, but it certainly was a good week uh, for the defense and for Netanyahu in his legal uh, issues. But there's still quite a long way to go. Thank you. An anonymous attendee uh, says an article this week stated that many Gazan residents are unhappy with their Arab leaders and they may welcome Israel taking over. Are there? Do you have any comments on this? Israel taking over Gaza? I guess the government uh, aspect of it. Um, I have not read an article. I First of all, Israel would not take back Gaza. I don't see any, uh, you know, there's no stomach for it in Israel, really, amongst almost, uh, there's minimal, minimal uh, support for such a move. And I doubt uh, Palestinians in Gaza would support such a thing, even if they are, or a certain percentage are unhappy with Hamas. I, I can't see that there's any support uh, for such a thing. So when there's no support from the Gazan people, there's no support from Israel, it, it, I, I, it, you know, there's, there's very little reason to believe there's anything behind that. Thank you. And uh, David Levine, going back to our, our previous weeks, do you have any more information as to the current status on the investigation into the death of the Al Jazeera reporter? As long as uh, Voss refuses to hand over the bullet, uh, how can any accurate conclusions be reached? Right. Well, that, that's Israel's position. And even the Americans are supporting that. They're trying to convince the Palestinians to hand over the bullet, which would have a lot of information and really go a long way to identifying um, who shot it. Uh, but the Palestinians not handing that over. Uh, many in Israel would say that that in itself uh, is indicative uh, because they obviously have their own ballistic experts who, who must have seen the bullet. And maybe that's indicative of something. Um, so obviously, it's going to be very, very difficult to find out exactly who did it. The Palestinians obviously are accusing Israel of shooting, not only shooting, but premeditated shooting. Uh, Palestinians are claiming without much evidence, or uh, certainly uh, apart from some hearsay evidence of those who are obviously heavily biased, that Israel was intentionally shooting in the direction uh, of the Al Jazeera journalists and other journalists who were, who were in the area. But obviously... Uh, that's to be taken. That's not to be taken too seriously. The Americans are pushing very much. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken had a discussion with uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, and that was certainly uh, an issue that was brought up. Um, and it is something the Americans are talking about uh, frequently with their interlocutors. Um, you know, the National Security Advisor, the Israel's National Security Advisor, was in. In Washington this week, and uh, the main issue was Iran, but the, you know, the readout was very much focused on the Palestinians, which shows where the Americans want the attention. They still want the attention very much with the Palestinians, and 
you know, it's the lead up to a potential visit by President uh, Biden to Israel, to the region. Um, so that's where they want the attention. But obviously behind closed doors, a lot of the attention uh, went on Iran. Thank you. And Carrie Hillebrand asks, what are the chances of diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia in the foreseeable future? I, I mean, I believe that it will happen uh, just when it happens. Uh, even Foreign Minister Lapid was brave enough. I say brave enough. The fact if, if Foreign Minister is coming out with such statements, it means that there's something behind it. But he said that it probably won't be like with the UAE and Bahrain, where it will be you know, one, you know, one shot. It will be probably a, a you know a drip uh, effect, probably smaller steps taken over a series of time. Uh, certainly, in the moment there is a little bit more uh, than there was. Um, you know, I, there's a bit more of a push from the U.S. The U.S. would certainly uh, like to see it, and they're pushing for the first time uh, under this administration for for potentially it to happen. Uh, the Saudis will probably want to see something to justify it from the Israeli side. Um, you know, they've said very much they've tried to tie relations with Israel to the Palestinian issue. Um, so probably there would have to be some gesture on that side for them to move. But again, they could be taking relatively minor steps. Um, and because the fact that the Emiratis, because the Bahrainis, because the Moroccans and even the Egyptians, obviously we've had um, relations uh, with Egypt since 1979, but I don't think that they've been as warm uh, as they have been of late. So, you know, the, it, it's, it's not the region that it once was. So for Saudi Arabia to even take the steps that it has up until now to allow Israeli aircraft to fly over its territory, et cetera, et cetera, are, are the kind of steps that I think that we will see gradually over the next few years. All right. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you time for thank you for taking time to update us this week. Thank you. And for our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Bill Roggio on why ISIS and Al Qaeda are still relevant. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.